Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you enjoy the teachings from Beth Emanuel, share the links with your friends. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends about the things you are learning at Beth Emanuel. Help us grow the message. I have to tell you something. As a friend, I'm going to be honest with you. And I don't, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. But I've been thinking about it and I've decided that you, that all of you are all mixed up. Yes, it's a problem. You are all mixed up. My family and I once had the privilege of receiving an invitation to attend a Passover Seder at the home of a prominent Hasidic rabbi in the St. Paul community. I believe it was the second night of Passover. There were several other guests, and as it turned out, we were not the only people present who were not Jewish. At the end of the Seder, and after three glasses of wine had already done their job, the rabbi stood up in the midst of all these people and he gave an inspiring talk about what it means to be liberated from Egypt and to come out of exile and how the redemption from Egypt is a foundation of Jewish identity. At that moment, I think, he then remembered that not everyone present was Jewish. Without missing a beat, he said, and not only for the Jewish people, but it says in the Torah that an heir of Rav went up with them. That is, a mixed multitude went up from Egypt along with the Jewish people, and they too were redeemed along with Israel. The passage to which he referred is Exodus 12.38. Also, a mixed multitude went up with them, and flock and cattle very much livestock. Have you heard of this before, the mixed multitude? Of course you have. It's often cited as a proof text when you want to establish that Gentile disciples have a connection to Passover and the exodus from Egypt. Why would a Gentile keep Passover? If you're not Jewish and you observe Passover or celebrate it in some capacity, let me ask you the question, why do you keep Passover? Perhaps you could answer from this verse, Have you never read? Also, a mixed multitude went up with them. That's actually not a very good answer to the question. That's not a valid reason for a Gentile to keep Passover. It also says, And flock and cattle, very much livestock, went up with them. You don't hear about farm livestock attending Seder meals on the strength of Exodus 12.38. Of course, in the days of the temple, a lot of sheep did end up at Passover seders, whether they wanted to or not. The mixed multitude argument is not a good answer to the question for why a Gentile disciple would celebrate the Passover, along with the Jewish people. A better answer would be this. I celebrate the Passover because I am a disciple of Yeshua of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, who was martyred at Passover time offering up his life as a holy sacrifice at that time. And before he suffered, he bade his disciples to keep the Passover in remembrance of his body, which was to be slain, and his blood, which was to be shed, as a symbol for our future home in a second redemption, which will eclipse the first, when he will again take the cup and the matzah and the Pesach with his disciples in his father's kingdom. That's a better answer to the question. I wouldn't want to hang any piece of my religious identity on the air of Rav, the mixed multitude. That's not my connection to the Torah. 
I don't have a share in Israel because there were some Gentiles who left Egypt along with the Jewish people. I have a share in the commonwealth of Israel because I am a servant of the king of Israel. You understand the difference. In the Midrash, the mixed multitude usually gets a pretty bad rap. Jewish tradition blames the mixed multitude for all the problems. They are the troublemakers, the rabble who instigate all the complaining. They are the let's go back to Egypt crowd and the make us gods folks and that sort of thing. That's probably not fair. I tend to think of those Midrashim as just a case of xenophobic bigotry, a game called blame the goyim for everything. I've never been much interested in the era of Rav because I find my religious identity in Yeshua, not in spurious claims like that. But a few years ago, I was reading the Parsha, and it really struck me how strange the term Erev Rav looked to me in Hebrew. Mixed multitude. Mixed multitude. Mixed. Is that what Erev really means? Yes, it does. And let's think about this word. Where else do we find this word? It's similar to the word Eruv. An Eruv refers to a border, a boundary. An Eruv is the area within a defined boundary in which it is permissible to transfer objects on the Sabbath, or to put it more simply, to carry on the Sabbath. In Jewish neighborhoods, you usually have an Eruv line, looks like a telephone wire, that encompasses the neighborhood, and it's permissible then, within those boundaries, to carry on the Shabbat. It's a great innovation for Jewish people. How does the Eruv make it permissible for Jewish people to carry on the Sabbath? There's lots of misunderstanding about this. Here's the concept. The thing is that carrying on the Sabbath is not forbidden. It's completely permissible. What's forbidden is to carry something outside of your home for a distance more than four cubits. So Jewish law understood this to mean that there is a prohibition on transferring an item from a private domain, your home, into a public domain, outside. That's the problem. So it's completely permissible for a Jewish person, if he or she wanted, to move a 50-pound jug of water so long as the carrying occurs within the home. But it's completely forbidden for the same person to carry even the smallest item, even a single apple, outside in a public space. Makes no sense, right? Well, it is counterintuitive. But that's how the law works. So how does an Eruv help? It works like this. Since it's permissible to carry within a private domain, what if we were to change the borders of the private domain, so to speak, by connecting more than one private domain and declaring them one domain, like all the houses in the neighborhood? We could create a legal fiction declaring them to be a single connected domain with courtyards between them. All we need to do is put a border around the houses that we want within our new domain. Then all these houses connect together into a single private domain, so to speak, making it permissible for Jewish people to carry within those borders, and that's an Eruv. Sounds simple. It's actually quite a bit more complicated than that, because within the borders of the space that you have demarcated, there are not only private domains, but there's also lots of public domain, open yards, sidewalks, streets, and so forth. So in what sense are they private? They're not. But because of the law of Eruv, within the borders of the Eruv, they are mixed together with the private. So they become, legally speaking, part of the private, even though they are public and open. 
So what the Eruv border does is it takes two kinds of space, inside and outside space, private and public space, and mixes them together and creates a mixed space in which it is permissible to transfer an object, to carry an object. And that's why it's called mixed. That's what Erev means, mixed. We use another similar Hebrew word all the time when we speak of the evening time as Ma'ariv and the eve of the day as Erev. Erev Shabbat is Sabbath Eve. Erev Pesach is the night of the Seder meal. Erev Yom Kippur is the eve of the fast and so forth. We use this word all the time to mean Eve, like Christmas Eve, which is Erev Nidlnacht. Erev doesn't mean night. The Hebrew word Lila means nighttime. Erev is set opposite Boker from the beginning. There was Erev and there was Boker one day. Technically, Erev refers to the boundary between the two days, the time of mixture, when one day cross fades into the next. The sun is going down, but it's not dark yet. It's called the gloaming. One day is fading into another. Like the prayer says, he creates day and night, rolling away the light before darkness and darkness before light. He causes day to pass and brings night, distinguishing day from night. That's the original meaning of Erev. That's why in our Torah portion, when it says, And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, the translation is wrong. They were not to kill the lambs at twilight. The Hebrew says, Bein ha'erbayim, that is, between the two Arabs. What two Arabs? You would assume the midpoints between sunset and sunset, but Erev doesn't mean sunset. It means a mixture. So the first Erev occurs as the morning transfers to afternoon. The sun reaches its peak at noon. And at that time, it's neither morning nor afternoon. It's both a mixture. And then it begins its downward journey, and that's called afternoon. The second Erev comes as the sun sets and the day fades into the next. So between these two Erevs would be mid-afternoon. And that's why the Passover sacrifice occurred not at twilight, as our English Bible says, but during the ninth hour of the day, around 3 p.m., the same time as the death of our master, who died on Erev Pesach Bein HaErbaim, on the eve of Passover, between the Erevs at the ninth hour. So now we understand what Erev or Erev means. It's when a thing is not quite one thing or another, but it's both. Something in between. A mixture. Something mixed up. You could translate the Erev Rav that went up from Egypt as the mixed up multitude. Why does it say it this way? If it means Gentiles, why didn't it just say Goyim Rav, the multitudes of Gentiles, multitudes of nationalities? Instead, it calls them mixed-up multitude. The rabbis lodged various explanations. Rabbi Eliyahu Mizraki reads, A mixture of other nations with the Egyptians. In this opinion, they are mixed up because they are a mixture of ethnicities and Egyptian people. According to Mechilta de Rabbi Shimon, it refers to converts and slaves. 
in this opinion, they are mixed because they consist of people who willingly converted to become Jewish and people who became Jewish as slaves of Jewish households, which would make them slaves of slaves. Targum Pseudo Yonatan and Ankelos both translate it as a multitude of strangers. In this opinion, they are Gentiles in the midst of Israel, God-fearers, the Ger Toshav, the stranger in your midst. Rashbam connects Vayit Arvu Vagoim to Erev Rav, but mingled themselves with the nations, Psalm 106, 35, which is to suggest intermarried people. In his opinion, the mixed multitude consists of intermarried people and the children of intermarried parents. This is like what Ibn Ezra says of Egyptians who intermingled with them. That is, one parent was Egyptian, the other was Jewish, like the blasphemer of Leviticus 24, whose mother was a Danite and father was an Egyptian. Interesting side note is that the sages believed that these were not just a few Gentiles, or what have you, but rather they believed that the Erevrav were the majority of the people that went up out of Egypt. 120 myriads, these are the words of Rabbi Ishmael. Rabbi Akiva says, 240 myriads. Rabbi Yonatan says, 360 myriads. Rashi says, a mixture of people from various nations who were converts. So the demographic problem isn't something new. The Erevrav catch my interest because they fall outside of the conventional black and white either-or definitions. Were they Jewish or not? They were not Israelites, and yet they were in some sense. They were the intermarried and the children of the intermarried. They were slaves and strangers, people who had attached themselves to the people of Israel out of fear of the God of Israel. They were the stranger in your midst. Personally, I like to think that some of them were one law. Some of them had a Jewish parent or grandparent. Some of them thought they did, claiming that they had Jewish ancestry. I think that some of them were converts who had been Egyptians or other peoples, but no longer. Instead, like Ruth, they abandoned their people and their ancestral gods and became part of the Jewish people by choice. And a lot of them, I think, weren't quite sure how they got mixed up in the Exodus, but they knew one thing for sure. They didn't want to stay in Egypt any longer. This whole discussion of boundaries and mixtures reminds me of a popular book in Jewish Christian studies titled Borderlines. The book, by Daniel Boyarin, is about the separation of Judaism and Christianity. It tries to answer the question, why did Christianity leave Judaism? And when did Christianity and Judaism become two separate religions? The premise of the book is that the answer isn't nearly as clear and black and white as you would think. There is no definitive answer to these questions because it happened slowly, more like a slow crossfade. For a long time, there were Jewish disciples within the Jewish people and part of the broader Jewish community. Some became Jewish Christians and left the synagogue. Some Gentile disciples remained in the synagogues with the Jewish communities, while other Gentiles lost all touch with Judaism. There were a couple of centuries where it wasn't quite one or the other, but both mixed together. That's the premise of the book. 
And the book goes on to make the case that it was the leaders of the Jewish community and leadership of the Christian community who attempted to firm up identity by answering the question of who is a Jew and who isn't, and who is a Christian and who isn't. They needed to determine who is in and who is out. They needed to define the borders, intentionally shaping interpretation and theology to exclude the other, and hence the church began to exclude all things Jewish, and in the process created the religion of Christianity, and the Jewish people began to exclude all things Yeshua, and in the process created Judaism. That's the premise of the book. So I guess another way to put it, originally Yeshua followers were a mixed multitude. Some Jewish, some Gentile, some still attached to the Jewish community, some not, and so forth. If you are a black and white person, an either-or person who likes to divide the world into right and wrong, good guys and bad guys, a mixed space is really hard to accept. But I believe that real life takes place in the mixed spaces. Real life is rarely so dichotomous. If you feel like everything is either the truth or it's a lie, you are living in an illusion. That's rarely the case. Most of life occurs outside of our ideals and absolutes and fails to meet our convictions. Who can say that he even lives up to his own standards for himself? How much less will others meet his standards for them? Trying to force the world into light and dark and denying that there is a significant amount of Erev between is a heavy burden to bear. Most of what we know and experience as reality is composed of perceptions and misperceptions mixed together. The black and white person who has a need to categorize everything as truth or lie, good guy or bad guy, has a terrible burden to carry through life. These are not happy people because their worldview constantly slams up against a reality of mixtures, gray areas, truths that are not true from every perspective, and lies that are not entirely wrong, good guys who have a lot of bad inside them, and bad guys who have a lot of good. That's the real world. Real life happens on the edges where things are mixed together. It looks dysfunctional. It looks like a mess. It's such a disappointment. It's not what you imagined. It's not what you hoped for. But it's not all bad. There's a lot of good. It's better than you could have guessed. All at once. Sickness and health. Poverty and wealth. Joy and sorrow. The spirit and the flesh. All mixed together. In the old Irish folk tales, you had to be especially careful when crossing borders, because borders were mixtures. They were places that belonged neither to one nor the other, but both, and that made them both up for grabs. For example, if a river divided two territories, to whom did the river belong? Neither. Both. Therefore, to the fairies. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that spirituality takes place in mixed places. The rabbis say that God gave the Torah in the wilderness because the wilderness belonged to no nation, so that no nation could say, he gave the Torah within our borders. But rather, he gave the Torah in the wilderness to show that his revelation is universal and intended for everyone. We know that God is Hamavdil, 
the one who separates, who makes a distinction, who separates between light and dark, between the holy and the profane, between the Sabbath and the six days, between Israel and the nations. The whole work of creation, the six days of creation, were acts of separating one thing from another. That's why we make Havdalah, and why we make Havdalah when we do. We wait until the Erev has passed. Sabbath doesn't end at sundown. It ends when the Erev has passed, after the period of time during which it is neither day nor night, after the last light of the holy day is no longer visible after the sun has set. Then we perform the ritual of Havdalah, which means separation, to signify that the holy day has ended and the new day has begun. Isn't it interesting that our master rose at the hour of Havdalah? It says in Matthew 28 that it occurred when the first day of the week was coming, that is, when the Sabbath was ending. The resurrection of Messiah belongs to the edges at the borders. That is the hour of the resurrection. Real life happens on the edges between one thing and another, where light meets darkness and darkness meets light, where the water meets the dry land, where the heavens touch the earth. That's where real life happens, and that's where real spirituality thrives, in the places in between. According to an obscure piece of agrafa, Yeshua once said, the world is a bridge, pass over it. In other words, the whole world the whole universe straddles two realities. That's what life is. God made man to be a mixture of heaven and earth. He took a clump of earth representing the material world, and he breathed a spirit, neshama, into it. And that is why we're all mixed up, neither animal nor angel, but a little bit of both. That's what it means to be human. God separated Israel from the nations to be a people set apart, not simply for the sake of setting them apart, but in order that they should be a priestly people, a kingdom of priests, and a light to the nations. That's why Israel's true mission is best fulfilled on the edges, in the mixture where the single set-apart nation rubs shoulders with the nations. This was God's purpose in revealing himself in the creation he wanted to infuse the profane with the holy, and thereby elevate it. He wanted to bring heaven down to earth, and thereby elevate it. That's the idea of the sanctuary in the midst of the people. It's a mixed space where heaven and earth, where spiritual and physical, occupy the same space. That's also how we understand our master Yeshua who was born of the Virgin, a son of David, son of Joseph, but spiritually born from heaven, the Logos made human, in whom fullness dwells physically, all mixed together, all mixed up in one person, a mixture of the Almighty and the human, a second Adam. Even the kingdom is Arab. The Messianic era is a unique period of time, because it's not the world to come. But it's not this present age either. It's neither Olam Haba nor is it Olam Hazeh. Instead, it's the crossfade between this world and the world to come. The Messianic era, the kingdom, is 
Erev Olam Haba. I compare it to the one cubit space between the veils in the temple that separate the holy place from the holy of holies, a space which is both holy place and holy of holies, a space that functions as a passage from one to the other. Think of it this way. The sages tell us that Olam Haba, the world to come, is the day that will be completely Sabbath, If the world to come is the day that will be completely Shabbat, that makes the Messianic era into the thousand years of Erev Shabbat. This means that the kingdom is the era of mixture between this world and the next. During the kingdom, the resurrected will mix with the dying, the mortal with the immortal, and the eternal will mix with the finite. This is what the prophet Zechariah says about the Messianic era. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Zechariah 14.7 When is it neither day nor night, but both? At the time of Erev, between the days. And in that day, the day of the coming kingdom, we enter a time between the worlds, between the two days. As disciples of Yeshua, who have hope in the resurrection, the new life, the kingdom, and a share in the world to come, we are all mixed up. Together, Israel and the nations, we are sons and daughters of the kingdom, children of the time of the Erev, a great multitude which no one could count from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth. The Torah says a mixed multitude left Egypt. The exodus from Egypt foreshadows the coming future redemption, when Messiah will redeem Israel from this current exile and lead his people into the kingdom, just as Moses led Israel out from Egypt. And just as a mixed multitude went up from Egypt... So too, a mixed multitude will go up with Messiah into the kingdom to be gathered to him, along with his people, from the four winds into his kingdom. As it says in Zechariah 14, verses 5 through 7, Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. Take on my yoke and learn from me and find rest for your soul.